Hey y'all, welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I chat with the super talented author, Lauren Meckling. Her debut novel, How Could She?, comes out on the 25th of June and is a hilarious and extremely relatable book on 30-something female friendship. The book follows three friends, Geraldine, Rachel, and Sunny, as they navigate the choppy waters of adulthood, particularly when it comes to their careers. Whether you're considering a full career change like Geraldine, exploring what it truly means to go it alone like Sunny, or hoping to refresh your image like Rachel, I truly believe that How Could She will resonate with every 30-something woman around the world. Witty, hilarious, painfully sad and honest, Lauren has given us a truly wonderful debut novel. I loved this book and I'm so delighted that I had the opportunity to chat with Lauren about friendships, new and old, careers, and what it means to be a woman in 2019. I really hope you enjoy our episode. I am excited because I am here today with the very talented Lauren Meckling. I can't wait to talk about your book. And as we were just touching on earlier before we started, you've got less than a month until publish day. I mean, do you still have the butterflies? Are you excited? Are you nervous? What are you feeling right now? It's funny. I should be nervous. I think that's the thing you're supposed to be feeling at this stage. I'm actually just so very happy. It's been so much nicer than I ever imagined slash feared. You know, I'm now just starting to hear from people who are getting their hands on early copies of the book and people are being incredibly enthusiastic and nice and it feels pretty good. And there's been some fantastic early reviews of your book. There's so many different publications that have included you in the must read summer books or must read books for June. I mean, that must just absolutely touch your heart. It feels incredible. I I was with my parents yesterday and my children and we were walking up to the park in Brooklyn. And as we were walking, I got a Twitter notification from someone I didn't know. And it was someone from the New York Times just mentioning that I'd made that list. And it was so amazing to be able to be with my parents, um, you know, with my knees shaking on the corner and look up at them and say, Mom, Dad, you put up with a lot of annoying nonsense for me, but <laughs> I hope you feel good about this. Very well deserved and very exciting. This really fun, fantastic debut novel, it's not even out yet. And like I said, there's just been so much praise around it. So I was hoping you could just give us a little synopsis, a sneak peek of what How Could She is about. Very brief synopsis is it's about the trouble with female friendship. The medium synopsis is if you've ever had a friend who broke your heart, this is the book that will hit a nerve and possibly answer some questions. And the longer synopsis is it's a love triangle among three female friends. It's a story of three women who became close in their early 20s. And they were shoulder-to-shoulder peers. They all worked at a magazine together in Toronto. And the book now jumps forward to one particular year. It's 2017. And the book shows how these women are still interacting with each other and how much they still matter to each other and how they end up actually swapping places over the course of this year. There's Geraldine, sort of the heart of the book, who was traumatized four years ago when her fiancé left her right before their wedding. She still is not yet back up on her feet, and she is feeling fairly underserved by life. She's living in Toronto. She's working a job that she's overqualified for. And meanwhile, two of her closest friends, Rachel and Sunny, have managed to 
moved to New York and really make a splash in their own ways. So Rachel, who was the sort of girl about town magazine columnist, is now a young adult writer and she's a new mother. And Rachel is a failed young adult writer at this point. So she's really struggling to juggle new motherhood. And she's married to a very nice and patient, but decreasingly patient man. And she's trying to get back on track and she's feeling like she's becoming invisible yeah and then there is Sunny who is by all measures she's just winning the game of life she's become this it girl watercolor artist who has this way of sort of bringing the party with her wherever she goes Definitely. she's very sort of mysterious and also very appealing and very charming and semi-famous and people just do backflips in order to be anywhere near her orbit. So the story is about how these three women maintain their friendships and maneuver around one another. It's kind of funny because I think sometimes, especially in fiction, we want to connect with a character really early on in the book. We want to <laughs> we want to find that character who's kind of like us. When I messaged you and I told you, oh, I don't know how I feel about Rachel and Sunny right now. I know Geraldine's my girl, you know, I, I absolutely love her. And then you actually said to me, well, I'll be interested to see how that changes, whether you actually are rooting yeah. for some other characters. But then at the same time, I thought to myself, well, it doesn't have to be either or. I don't have to just like one. I can like all of them. I can like different things things about all of them. And what I really liked was that they're very relatable. Geraldine, I, I think the reason I connected so quickly with her is that she's searching for something that really makes her feel valued. She's yes. living in Sunny's apartment, actually, in Toronto. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it kind of feels like she's just been given things and she's not really been able to take charge of her own life. I was just wondering if you could kind of talk us through your process for writing characters. My characters do not bring fully formed from my imagination, they dart as these thumbprints or ideas. And then I work for years at shading in who they are and thinking about their flaws and also their attributes and trying to constantly surprise myself the way that our real friends do constantly surprise us with sides of them that we never really thought about or knew existed or had been blind to. So Sunny was really just born of my fascination with a certain type of woman and a woman who everyone sort of looks to as doing things right. And then in developing her, I was thinking about, well, what is it really like to be that kind of woman? Maybe it's hard. Maybe yeah. she feels really lonely because she's just being told by everyone who she works for and everyone who surrounds her who she's meant to be. And she's not really allowed to be needy herself or just have her own collapses as mm -hmm. we, you know, so many of us really do. And Geraldine, I just thought of someone who was sort of peering through the window and then of course she ends up writing a few memos of her own and she's anything but a sad sack she's I think a phenomenal woman and the Rachel character was a bit of a game I was playing with myself in that there were definitely some attributes that I took from my own life and mm -hmm. I thought it would be funny to insert somebody who seemed like me but in fact is not me yeah. into the story. So she was the one who I actually struggled with the most in that I was really mean to her in the very beginning, the first draft. <laughs> I was so cruel to this Aww. person in that she was the most annoying person ever. Mm. She had every one of my bad qualities times 100. And then I guess as one does in life, one you know goes to therapy and starts to learn to be kinder to themselves. Yeah. I allowed her to be her own person and to have some 
very you know, special charm. Something that really fascinates me about the way women interact with each other is the performative quality to it. And yes. that and how that goes hand in hand with the raw intimacy. So in some ways we see through each other and we know more about each other than our families or our lovers do. Absolutely. And then in a way to protect ourselves from the sort of blinding rawness of all of that. Yeah. We do our best to dance around each other a bit and keep secrets or not be completely forthcoming. It's fascinating. And I think with women especially, body language is everything. And if, especially if you've known someone for a really long time, what they're not saying is sometimes louder than what they are saying. So this kind of, as you said, this performance that I think women are particularly talented at doing the kind of smiling when you're actually feeling awful. At the same time, as we later find out in the book, everybody gets exactly what they deserve in such a, in such a great way. I don't mean that as a vindictive comment. I mean yeah. that as in like they actually get what they truly work toward and deserve. And, yeah. and and ultimately, it comes as a result of their own raw talent as well. We'll get into that a little bit later, but Geraldine, what she ends up doing, being a big success from an idea that just is hatched. Rachel finally getting that second chance to really reestablish herself as a talented writer in, in, the, in the YA space. And then you have Sunny. She's again coming back to the realization that she can fend for herself and what that actually looks like which is really interesting but what I found quite difficult sometimes to read because I've gone through similar things as well is the tension in the book especially between Sunny and Rachel and we don't know why we see it early on but we don't know why we don't know what's actually happened between the two of them we think that there's this happy threesome of friends but the one thing that they do have in common Rachel and Sunny even though there is that tension is that they care about Geraldine and that's actually what connects them again and they have a history but ultimately they each have to forge their own path and the book is beautifully woven to show all of those paths and especially with long-term friendships that we've had maybe Mm -hmm. since childhood or even just Mm -hmm. we have that history with why do you think we cling to those past relationships so strongly and are almost sometimes afraid to let them go I think our friendships are so essential to who we are and I think it's not just a matter of being loyal to somebody or having a history with somebody that we feel this desire to maintain a connection but I think our friends more than perhaps anyone else are the people who helped us define who we are I think we compare ourselves to our friends more than to anyone else and I think our friends inspire us to make decisions sometimes bad sometimes good but I think by the time somebody is not a child anymore the thumbprint of our friends is all over us and it's yeah It's part of our biology. And in a way, disposing of a friend is like disposing of a self. You know, our friends hold part of our own history. There's something sacred to that. Yeah, they're just a part of us. And especially when you have been friends with someone through thick and thin. My friends and my old friends and my ex-friends know me better than my ex-boyfriends by a long shot or ex-colleagues. You know, in the hierarchy, I think friendship wins. Yeah, absolutely. And especially with female friendships, I feel like we love and we friend someone so fiercely and you know we want that trust and that loyalty back and sometimes that friendship is one-sided and sometimes it doesn't reciprocate the way that you want it to and it's deeply disappointing greatest heartbreak of my life was a woman a friend who did not want to be my friend anymore I think our friends were able to help each other and to make each other feel so good and we can also 
really, really, really hurt each other. Yeah, but also having those friends that are willing to call it the bullshit, to be honest, <laughs> to, you know, especially if we're doing that to ourselves, it's like, oh my gosh, okay, wait a minute, you know, this is not Yes, our friends pay attention in a way that other people don't. Yeah, completely agree. And as I said, Geraldine, I connected with her very early on. I was saying to you earlier before we started recording, I actually found myself crying a little bit while I was reading it because I have felt the way that she's felt. And you can literally do everything to your greatest power to try to impress somebody with an idea. And if it's just not your time, it is literally the most heart-wrenching thing ever. And you can't help but root for Geraldine. I think that there is really this strong stigma still, especially for women in their mid-30s, about starting over and about having this idea that by the time you're in your mid-30s, you have to really have everything figured out. You have to really be on that path that's going to set you right for life. And so much has evolved in our lifetime in terms of people aren't working for 40 years in the same role anymore. People are changing. Why do you think that stigma still exists today? Yeah, I mean, that's something I was fascinated with when I was working on the book or will be fascinated with till the day I die, which is the way people change and how difficult that is for those around to digest and respect that. Parents, I do this with my children too, will just look at their children in wonder and sort of misty-eyed, shake their heads and say, I can't believe, I remember the day when you were in your preemie diaper and look at you now. (laughs) And I feel like there's an element of that that happens in friendship too, where our minds can't quite compute the lengths that we've traveled. And I think humans, we desire simplicity, a simplicity that isn't actually the truth. And I think it's doubly the case with women as is with men, because in your 20s, there's expectance that everyone's gonna be jostling around and land in different places. And by the time people hit their 30s, everyone lands in their branch, you know, it's at the top of the tree or the bottom of the tree. I mean, it's very difficult at that point to keep changing your narrative. And I think it takes a lot of energy and chutzpah and (laughs) aggressiveness. And I think we're still conditioned to be more okay with men doing that than it's still a little shocking and perhaps scandalous for a woman who's closer to 40 than any other decade to say, I'm ready to completely change my life. So I think that's what Geraldine is up against, that she's being so vulnerable and honest about this desire yeah and she's willing to do what it takes and you know she's just waiting for it to catch that wave of the magic of the universe to allow her to show everyone what she's capable of yeah absolutely and that's so inspiring as well because especially if you feel in a very similar way that there's different paths that you want to take there's different crossroads but it's very conflicting because on one end you're like, okay, well, I should be grateful because I have a great job. It pays well. More or less, I am at a good point in terms of people respect me. But on the other (laughs) end, when we start seeing our friends or people we perhaps know professionally or even just on social media, when we start seeing people changing to do different things, we can't help but wonder, oh my gosh, what am I missing out on? It's really interesting. And it's really gotten to the point, I think, unfortunately, and I think this is what builds up some of that stigma as well is, Women are, for whatever reason, are supposed to be in competition with each other. It's supposed to be, well, if you succeed, then I can't succeed. That's totally not the case, is it? It's really we should be supporting each other and encouraging each other. Totally. Right. Well, that's something I was thinking about, too, the ways that we're generous and stingy with our friends and we can be simultaneously both of those things. Yeah, yeah. And I think another thing to go with that is that I think we're as women, we're told that we're all in competition with each other, but then we're actually not supposed to act 
like we're in competition or we're not supposed to act aggressive or determined yeah. to win. And then it just creates this very strange duality where, you know, it can be incredibly two-faced and not particularly honest. I yeah. think this, if the women in this story were honest with themselves and with each other of what they wanted and what they needed from one another. I think as, especially as we move, you know, more into 2019 and beyond, it's a very interesting time to be a woman. It's a very interesting time to be a woman in her mid-30s and the societal expectations, like I said, you have to have everything figured out by a certain point that it's not okay to really take that time for yourself to really understand what it is that you want out of life and you want out of your career. And as I kind of said, people are just not happy with that, you know, nine to five office work lifestyle anymore. People want to be more fluid. They want to be more flexible in the way that they're working. And I think that's what's really interesting about these characters. They are not tied down to one particular way of doing things. They're all very clever in the way that they work out what makes sense for them. And I really liked that. And particularly with Geraldine. I love your affinity for Geraldine. I find it so (laughs) touching. I'm sorry. I'm not giving Rachel and Sunny the the airtime that they deserve. but No, it's totally fine. (laughs) I love it. I love that when people read it, that's pretty much the first thing people say. They they talk about which one of the women speaks to them. And I'm so happy that people are relating to it in this really intimate way. That's good. Yeah. And I love Geraldine, so I don't think you could have chosen better. Perfect. Both have a, a strong love for Geraldine. I found her story arc and her transition, well, the most personal to me but also the most exciting and that's not saying that Rachel and Sunny didn't get the same exciting narrative but in a way because I kind of saw her as the main character the main kind of driver and there's so many surprises in the book that's what I loved as well I just found her transition the most exciting one of the things that I was going to touch on as well is that Geraldine doesn't just wait around in Toronto she decides that she's actually going to come to New York and she's going to give this a go and be damned if it doesn't go her way because she's not leaving until she really figures it out. I think she's almost surprised by her own propensity to doubt herself. I think she wants to feel confident. She wants to get to that point in her life where she is confident going into her room and saying, this is what I do. This is who I am. I achieve this. Whereas I feel like with Rachel, she's a little bit more, okay, this is my life now. I've got my new daughter and I've got these books that I've written and people know me to a certain extent. But I almost felt like with Rachel, she was okay with things going a little bit slower. She's very anxious to get there, but she wasn't looking for that real quick win as I think right. Ger- Geraldine I think Rachel was. just feels like her life is spinning out of yeah. control. Yeah, exactly. And she's just trying to get to feel less dizzy yeah. and to feel like, yes, she has a handle on yeah. her situation. But she's got different responsibilities. So she kind of has mm-hmm. to frame it in a different way. Whereas Sunny, you know, she's got a much more kind of bigger place to work from. So she has created this name for herself in doing these beautiful watercolors and she's got her shows and she wants these friends to be proud of her. That was the thing that I really liked is that each of them wanted people to be proud of them. Yeah. And I think also part of the engine of the story is these women, they do feel pride on behalf of their friends, but there is also a nasty sense of doubt that they feel on behalf of their friends. And I think that that actually drives, especially in the case of Geraldine, I'm not sure Geraldine would have come so far had she not known that two of her closest friends were watching her and didn't believe that it could happen. Yeah, and that makes the ending just so much more sweeter. So we're going to navigate a little bit to the male characters now. And I'm going to go on record to say that Jesse is the ideal man. So he's Rachel's brother. So he's a very helpful brother. He watches Cleo whenever she needs help. He's an outsider. And, you know, while reading this book, I just 
I got this like really instant connection to him just being like really cool, really calm, really collected. The guy you definitely want to be around. Did you just like have it in your head like this is who I'm modeling Jesse after? Did I say my husband? Um, <laughs> no, he. I, the only person I had in mind really was myself and that I was coming up with my dream man. He's sort of a Mr. Potato Head of, <laughs> you know, dreaminess. He is, yeah, he's sort of hilarious, right? He is, he works in a shop where he, he builds things, he makes furniture, and he works on his own schedule. And he also lives in an apartment without, he doesn't have to deal with the humdrum of, you know, being part of a family. He can like drink and read as late into the night as he wants to. He's smart. He has this strange ability to key into what somebody else is thinking or feeling. Yeah. I had to think about the underbelly of Jesse or the, the, the darker side of him, mm-hmm. which is that he is unable to connect in a certain way. Yeah. He is still in his bubble. He's a, He is a bit selfish in yeah. that he has devised this life that doesn't really involve other people. And he likes it that way. You know, he yeah. can come in and he can babysit his cute niece as needed. And then he can walk away. Disappear. Walk. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There was a poster of him. I would hang it on my bedroom wall. Absolutely. But, um... Absolutely. He's a very sexy character. And I love that scene when Sonny comes to where he's working. He's making things and they're talking about the Iliad. And he's like, yeah, I study classics. Such a fun surprise. That was another theme that I really liked about your book is it's definitely don't judge a book by its cover. And one of my favorite moments of the book, of which there are many, is when Geraldine and her new friends come up with the podcast and I love that they're just sitting around and they're just kind of really talking about this organic way of reaching people and podcasts are a medium which I feel like kind of had a bit of a, a resurgence you know they were popular at one time and then they've kind of come back I just would really love your thoughts on why you think that podcasts just continue to, to resonate with us and just be something that we, we can't live without well when I was writing the book podcasts were my weird thing you know I've been obsessed with podcasts since I can tell you the year was 2000 2005. I remember the moment um, I was reading on Slate online. They were saying, we have a new experiment. We're launching a podcast. And I downloaded it and I listened to it. And it was so exciting to actually hear the live voices of yeah. the, the writers who I loved. But there's something more to it than that because there's so many levels of interacting with figures who, who we're fans of. I can tell you how many hours I've listened to podcasts for all my life and it's very embarrassing. It's like <laughs> probably, I mean, it's it's in the, you know, like the tens of thousands. And I think podcasts for me perhaps are a way of feeling connected and not feeling lonely because I used to be a big phone person and I used to just talk to people all the time. Yeah. And now as a writer in a world where people get scared if they see their phone ringing it fills something for me and there's something about the medium that I find so fresh no matter how corporatized it's becoming you know there are all these big companies and there's sponsorships and there are ad breaks everywhere and yet when you're actually just listening to the minutes of tape just a freshness that can't be too manufactured and it fulfills me in a way that no other medium does. I remember when Serial came out and it just absolutely went viral to a next level. So, you know, Sarah Koenig doing this cold case and it just went everywhere. Um, well, I think it's also a matter, I mean, it might, it's like biological practically in the sense you're not reading something, you're not staring at a screen. You just yeah. have these voices that are in your brain. And I just think it hits a deeper nerve to yeah. listen to a story and listen to people. Yeah. 
I agree. And as humans, we crave stories. We crave that connection, you know, someone telling us a story. So it it absolutely makes sense. Very, very interesting. And going on to the storytelling side of things, I wanted to give Rachel some airtime. As you said, she writes young adult fiction. Mm -hmm. And as she has these chats with her agents and she kind of chats with her husband and stuff, she's really searching that next book. And she sees this Cassie character who's really making it big. In one ear, you have, you know, agents saying, oh, you should try this. This is really popular right now. But then on the other side of your ear, I need to stay true to who I am still, um, but not be afraid to try. And she's gearing up for her comeback and she receives this encouragement from Cassie, who writes a slightly different genre to Rachel, but is seen as hip and fresh, like I said. All the the things that Rachel initially doesn't think she is, but actually she she comes back. And Mm -hmm. there's this really great moment where she comes up with her latest idea and it's exactly what everyone wants. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. You know, writing about monsters. You know, I was just wondering, especially with fiction and well even nonfiction today we have authors who kind of stay in their genres they're known for these particular genres but Mm -hmm. then sometimes you see people stepping outside those genres and trying something different and because there's such an appetite for just books and reading today which I can definitely attest to I'm reading reading so voraciously now what are your thoughts on exploring new genres and new ways of writing do you think we need more of that it's funny because I'm thinking about what we were talking about how it's just more complicated and annoying to think of people changing. And I think we pigeonhole writers as well. And there's this idea that, you know, when somebody establishes themselves as a master of this or a spy writer, that they shouldn't dabble or play with something else. Kate Atkinson, you know, she's been doing spy novels and she's, you know, historical, like mm-hmm. speculative fiction. And then she also goes back and forth and does her amazing sardonic detective novels set in the present day. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's a beautiful thinker and a beautiful writer, and I will read anything she writes. You know, I think it's pretty much a parallel answer to talking about how people change, people's priorities change. I'm speaking as a failed young adult writer. So I used to write young adult fiction, and it was comic fiction. Mm-hmm. And it was at a moment when that was a big part of the young adult dialogue. Yeah. Um, and then the market moved away and did become more excited about monster stories or when <laughs> Kathy writes what it, Rachel calls it like sex crazed fairy yeah, fable. Yeah. So I mean, I think definitely I would not advise a writer taking a plunge into a field that they're not excited about. Yeah. Because it's not going to work. I mean, I tried that. I wrote a big, well, I thought it was a big book that nobody wanted to buy. It was a young adult book about like traffic fortune tellers. They could, you know, read people's thoughts in the future. And they were like traded amongst mafia families. And it seemed really neat. But I think ultimately what I ended up doing was writing my first adult novel, which was something I was scared to do. And I didn't perceive when I was setting out to do it, that it was going to be a commercial book that anyone would ever even read in advance of publication, let alone get published. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to take a chance at writing something that felt true to me and true to my priorities. And I just wanted to get that essential, that feeling you have when you're text messaging with a friend and you're scandalized and you're titillated. And so I guess I've jumped around genres, experimented with trying something new that felt right Mm -hmm. and trying something new that did not feel right. Yeah. As one gets older, it's great to keep growing. Yeah. Put yourself out there and experiment. And it's really nice because what your book does is it really gives those characters the permission that we want for them that they can start over that they can have those second chances that they can see that success come from something Uh that is that element of surprise and I think that's really nice and what I also kind of liked with this is it made me think of kind of other ways that people play with 
change of genre. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this like I have, but I also love films. But if you think about comedic actors, so if you think Uh about Will Ferrell, Robin Williams, when they go off to do serious films, drama, thrillers, they're actually really, really good. Because, well, yeah, I mean, I just mean it's interesting when you look at comedic actors who are known for certain things, like take Robin Williams for all those films that we grew up loving him for. And then he did One Hour Photo. And it's just like, oh my gosh, he is phenomenal as this right know, psychopathic exactly yes yes funny how yeah. we how we're not really open to like yeah. if the, the work has to really work yeah. to earn our endorsement yeah we kind of come to the table a little suspicious yeah. of such attempts yeah but at least having the ability to try something new and no one can fault you for that and that's what's so great is that especially in the arts you know whether you're a painter whether you're a writer whether you're a podcaster the chance to be able to create something from nothing is really fascinating and this really brings me on to my next question which is about those second chances and all of these characters get these second chances Geraldine (laughs) with her podcast Rachel with her new style of stories and Sunny's relationship with Jesse this idea that we start over and we find this success and it's really inspiring and that's what I loved about your book is just every page when you turn it it's just like oh my gosh I know that what's going to happen in the end is these characters are going to have this really happy ending and that's so needed today to have those happy endings to look forward to and when you have you know the knowledge that you have friends both old and new rooting for Mm -hmm. you it's so inspiring and you know I was just wondering the endings that each of these characters get did you know Mm -hmm. from the start that that's exactly how you wanted their endings to be or did you while you were writing kind of evolve your way of thinking I know you said Rachel kind of went through a transition but did you always have these endings in mind I always had the architecture in mind there's if you read it and you think about it in terms of like an xy axis where people are starting you know higher or low and how their narrative let's say they they rise or they fall so I knew exactly the shape of the book because I thought that would just be so fun to try to capture what happens in real life just the way people astonish us, especially the people we think we know the best, they astonish us the most because we're not ready for change to enter their lives. I didn't know the particulars. I worked and worked and played around. Yeah. But I I did know the way that sort of the the batons of power were going to be passed. And it kind of leads me to wonder, was there a moment when you were writing this book that really surprised you in terms of these characters, we spend 300 some odd pages with them, we get to know them. Characters have flaws, just like we have flaws. And I was just wondering, is there any moment that really took you by surprise that you weren't expecting when you were writing this book? Well, my ultimate feelings for Sunny really made me by surprise in that I feel very protective of her and sad for her. And the kind of woman who she is, is not the kind of woman who I would ever in real life because I, I can be more judgmental as a human than I am as a writer. I was surprised by the depth that she turned out to have yeah. and the pathos of her existence. And the more I think about her, the more I think about how she's essentially been existing to please everybody yeah. and to be told the kind of person she's meant to be. And so she's put aside her true artistic ambitions and instead she's just there's been something kind of manufactured about her and now she's you know that's something that she really comes to question and I find you know her loneliness quite sad and surprising because when you look at someone like that from the beginning they don't strike you as a lonely customer at all they're the most popular person on earth it's almost like you get to the point where you're like well what could they possibly 
have to complain about because they have yeah. such the picture perfect life. And, and the thing yeah, with Sunny, no, right. no, exactly. And the thing with Sunny is, cause we haven't really talked about her a lot, but the thing with Sunny is that I found myself thinking that I would know exactly what her ending would be. So I feel like with Geraldine, I was the most excited because as I said, I, I related to her more with mm-hmm. Rachel. I was like, Oh, it's so nice that there's that friend who is there for you and really cares about you means well. But then I was really delighted to see that Sunny and Rachel come back together in a way that I never thought was going to happen. But then with Sunny, as you said, on the surface in terms of it's right there in front of you, you're reading that she has, you know, this great life. But then as you said, there's just this overwhelming sense of protectiveness with her because you're like, is that the real story? Is that the full story? It's almost like you don't get the full story with Sunny. Well, she doesn't allow herself. Yeah, it it must be exhausting for her to have to carry weight on her shoulders Mm -hmm. of, of being what everyone hopes that she's going to be and thinks she's going to be. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And then obviously the relationship that she finds herself in really tests her as a, as a woman, as, as a person, as a wife. <laughs> and then there's the huge moment where all three friends confront each other. And oh, that part made me really the sad. Canadian Thanksgiving. Oh, oh my gosh. It's interesting how an event that is supposed to bring people together to give thanks has us blowing up and, and thinking about all the things that yeah. that we want to do. But they needed that in order to move on. They and move did. Through, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And it's very cathartic. It's very cleansing. So moving on to the last questions, the premise of this podcast is looking at great literature frozen in time. So I'd really love for yeah. you to imagine that your book has been placed on a shelf and mm-hmm. you can have your choice of authors and books to sit alongside your shelf and be frozen in time. And I was just wondering what books you would have on your shelf. I love this question. I, I love this part of your podcast. And my answer is going to be a weird mix, but I guess they're, that's sort of the hallmark of my writing, that it's a, a weird mix of things. My number one, my must be there on the shelf is Barbara Pym, who is my all-time favorite writer. She is an English writer who is no longer alive, sadly, but she wrote the most amazing, sharp comedies of manner that were also incredibly tragic and revealing about human nature and she's really influenced me I've discovered her in my my 20s and I read her and I reread her and I press her on to people I buy your books for everybody so Barbara Pym and she was a also a late bloomer which is something we've been talking about and I just I so am moved by two other books that I would want by my side would be Henry James's Washington Square, which I remember the first time I read it, I was it just blew my mind the way that such a slender book can, you know, essentially in, in very few pages just feel the rush of time moving by. I mean, it encapsulates this sort of tragic woman's entire life and it's about missed opportunity and a woman who is torn between the decisions she wants to make and the way that her father sees her and the influence that he exerts over her and the way that what other people think about us can you know, determine our faith. It, it makes me cry every time I read it. And see, Lily Bart is the heroine of The House of Mirth. She's a character whose narratives have surprising turns she was an Edith Wharton character who starts off as sort of the toast of the town and will quickly turn on her and her downfall is just astonishing to read about and then well there's a New York novel that I just adore and I 
I think it must have some influence on me. It's a book I read when I was a teenager. It's called Slaves of New York by Tana Janowitz. And it was just about like 1980s New York, the art scene and the, um, the pain and the silliness of people trying to make something of themselves in an unforgiving society. And... Then, you know, there are sort of a couple of books that I love that I think might just be more literal companions to my book. And one of them is by Adele Waldman, The Love Affairs of Nathaniel P., which looked at literary New York and writers jostling for affection and power. And the other one would be maybe The Interestings by Meg Wallitzer, just in that she, I think, did a really great job of examining the dynamics of a, a group of friends over several years oh that's a, a cracking bookcase I'll tell you lots it's of, a little strange right <laughs> oh no I love it I that's what is so wonderful about reading is that you can be as eclectic as you want and and I think going back to the question about genre changing it, especially if you love a particular author you know like I love Donna Tartt so The Secret History oh, did you read that new piece in Esquire about like Bennington College from that her year. No, I haven't you know, read it yet. Incredible oral history about the Bennington class of 1984. Amazing. Donna Tartt is, is one of my heroes. If she decided to do like spy books or if she decided to do like goth, I would follow her to the ends of the earth. Hello. Yes. Before we wrap up here, uh, How Could She is a fantastic debut and I am just so so pleased that everyone else feels exactly the same way that I do. Congratulations, Lauren. It's amazing. And thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. I've had so much fun talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading.